The whole Bible is a single story which presents the Lord Jesus Christ. In this module, we have journeyed through that story and have traced how this revelation unfolds throughout the Bible. God created the world in innocence, but Adam ruined it through sin. God, however, made a covenant to bring salvation through a Messiah. At last, in His death and resurrection, Jesus Christ atoned for sin. Now, united to Him by the Holy Spirit, His Church carries forward the Gospel message to the world. But the journey is not over. The great day of the Lord is yet to come. Perhaps you've seen pictures taken from a satellite looking over the face of the Earth. In a glance, you can survey the big picture of continents, countries, and oceans. Well, throughout this course, we have looked at the theology of the Bible as a whole and studied the contours of the landscape of the history of redemption. In doing so, we have sought to, to connect some of the big pieces in God's overarching story. We have seen that we need the whole Bible because from beginning to end, it reveals the knowledge of God in Christ and unfolds the, the wonderful plan of redemption throughout biblical history. Christ is not confined to the New Testament, far from it. His glory is displayed throughout the scriptures. And he has provided one way of salvation through one covenant of grace for the one people of God throughout time. There is a dominant continuity that connects all the parts of the whole Bible. What transpires on the last day? What is the nature of Christ's second coming? Why is the resurrection of the body essential to the salvation of God's people and damnation of the unbelieving? What is involved in the final judgment? And what are the consequences? How does all of this relate to the revelation of Christ's glory? What is the culmination of the believer's redemption? What in particular makes heaven so glorious? In this final lecture, we will consider the end and culmination of all of history. This means that we are looking forward into the future rather than backward into the past, like we have throughout most of this course. We will consider the last great events of redemptive history. Though we are unable to consider the book of Revelation in particular, you should note that it is uh, an important book for understanding the theology of the Bible. It pulls together essential connections between the Old and New Testaments and provides significant truths for understanding God's character and glory. It also picks up where the book of Daniel leaves off and connects the history from the period of the Apostle John through the last day. So we'll note a few things. First of all, uh, the last day. The natural man cannot see the future, despite all of his scientific instruments and intellectual prowess. But the believer can see what would be otherwise impossible through the re revelation that God has given of the future in the Bible. God alone has foreordained the future. He alone know, knows it. 
So in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, we read, But as it is written, eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. So we must fast forward to the end of time, the conclusion of of this age. In this world, we experience day after day after day after long day. But the Bible teaches that there is a last day beyond which there, there are no more days known in the present world. We will highlight a few of the events awaiting the end of time. First of all, Christ's second coming. The New Testament teaches that the first coming of Christ will be followed by a second and final coming. Jesus foretold of this himself in several places. For example, John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. At his ascension, the angels also reassured his disciples of this reality. Acts 1, verse 11, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Well, there are numerous references to this throughout the epistles. But this will only take place after the gospel has been preached to all nations and all that the New Testament says must first be fulfilled in connection with that, which we will not take time to cover here. But regarding Christ's second coming, we learn a handful of things by way of summary. We learn that he will return personally, as we saw just a moment ago in Acts 1.11. We also see that he will return physically. Revelation 2, verse 20, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We see that he will return visibly. We see this in many passages, but in Revelation 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, And every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. It will be a glorious and triumphant coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first but it will also be a final coming. When Christ returns, it will be at the end of the world. He does not come a third time with other events taking place in the intervening period, contrary to what uh, premillennialists teach. No, we read in the Bible, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 24, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Christ will bring about two great events that coincide with his second coming. 
the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment. So next we consider the resurrection. The Old Testament teaches the future bodily resurrection, and Christ defends it against the errors of the Sadducees. Likewise, the New Testament epistles are full of references, most notably 1 Corinthians 15. We learn that it will be a resurrection of the physical body. Romans 8 verse 11 says, But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, so he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. This will involve both the resurrection of the just and the unjust, as we read in Acts 24 verse 15. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. The unbeliever will be raised to condemnation and the believer to glory. The resurrection of the body is a necessary part of the salvation of the Christian. Christ came to redeem the whole person. So without the resurrection of the body, their salvation would be incomplete. Shorter Catechism question 38 says, At the resurrection, believers, being raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Just as Jesus Christ rose as the firstfruits, so those in union with Christ will also be raised up to glory. But in connection with this, the last day will also be the the judgment day. Christ's return and the resurrection will lead immediately to the final judgment of all men. This belongs to part of Christ's exaltation and glory. Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Both the Old Testament and numerous passages throughout the New Testament foretell of this sober event. We learn that Christ, as the mediator, will be judge and will assemble all men before his seat of judgment. Paul writes, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. We learn that all mankind will appear before his judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The consequences of this judgment are equally clear in Scripture. The judgment will will result in the great divide, the divide between heaven and, and hell. The unbelieving will be cast into the lake of fire. 
deprived of all comfort and suffering the pains of body and soul under God's just wrath for all eternity without end. The final state of believers will be in the gracious presence of God in the new heavens and new earth under the enjoyment of eternal life. For the believer, the weekly Sabbath in this world will be fulfilled in an eternal Sabbath in heaven. We read this in Hebrews 4 verse 9 where it says, There remaineth therefore a rest, that, that word in the word rest in the Greek is different than the other words rest in the surrounding verses. It literally means a Sabbath keeping. There remaineth therefore a rest or a Sabbath keeping to the people of God. And this will bring about the culmination of the covenant of grace. Notice the, the covenant promise that we've heard so much about uh, throughout the Bible in Revelation 21 verses 2 and 3. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Listen, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Well, that leads us next to the consideration of the eternal glory that belongs to the believer. And we're going to spend some more time on this particular point. We'll turn our attention to the eternal glory that awaits the believer in eternity. What might that be? For many in our generation, they conceive of heaven as a, a celestial playground where they indulge in all of the enjoyments of this world to a maximal degree. But that would be far too paltry. Christ did not die to bring his people to heaven so that they would only cling to the things of this world. The salvation of men centers on God and his glory. The final destruction of Christ's enemies and the receiving of his redeemed bride is the eternal delight and reward of Christ, of which his bride is a humble partaker, his bride being the church. The glory of heaven is the sight of God, what theologians call the beatific vision or the, the blessed or happy sight of, of God. We sing of this in Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. At the fall, man was thrust out of the garden, separated, alienated, cut off from God's gracious presence. But through Christ, who is the door, Believers are given entrance into glory. Christ's prayer in John 17, verse 24, will be fulfilled. Jesus prayed, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. In this world, the Christian beholds the glory of God indirectly through a mirror. They behold the glory of God by faith. 
But in heaven, they will see him directly, face to face, no longer by faith, but by sight. 17th century English theologian Thomas Manton said, We go to heaven to study divinity or theology in the Lamb's face. Even Job in the Old Testament spoke of beholding Christ. In Job 19, verses 25 to 27, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall, st- and that he shall stand at the, last, the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. It is God's glory that will fill the expanse and atmosphere of heaven. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 23 says, And I saw no temple therein, And the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. This will result in the pure pleasure and maximal satisfaction of adoring God himself. That means both in the destruction of his enemies as well as the deliverance of his people. We read in Revelation 19 about this in verses 1 to 7, and I'll I'll cite uh, a few of, of those verses. It says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore. Goes on a little bit later. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. The fact is that nothing that is created can bring ultimate satisfaction or truly fill the soul. And children see this. They look forward with eager anticipation to perhaps receiving a toy and they talk about it and they dream about it. The day comes, they finally receive the toy and they're all excited. And for the first day, it's a great deal of fun. The next day, uh, it continues perhaps. And then the day after that and the day after that, the pleasure diminishes a little until a few weeks later, the toy is found along with the rest of the others. And it is of, of, of no great pleasure more than, than the others. And what's true of children is true of every adult as well. We see that There's nothing that is created that can bring ultimate satisfaction. Yet that's ultimately what we crave. But we can sing in Psalm 16, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This led Jonathan Edwards, the American theologian, to conclude, The beatific vision of God, that is the tip of happiness. If a glimpse of God by faith is so great, 
then what will be the sight of him? What will the sight of him be like? Think with me. God is infinite. But men are finite. We're very limited. That means the believer can never exhaust what there is to see and know about God. Finite cannot contain what what is infinite. That means every new sight will be new and truly fresh. It's not as if they'll be rehearsing, uh, merely rehearsing things that we've already seen, heard, and known. But rather, there'll be a gradual uh, disclosure of, of the glory of God. And the believer's abilities will expand with the growing revelation of, of God throughout eternity. And this will go on and on. So, so Paul tells the Philippians that to depart and be with Christ is far better. Well, no wonder. In this life, joy enters the Christian, right? So the Christian has joy. But in heaven, they will enter joy. Contrast the difference between taking a glass of water, pouring water into your mouth, water's going into your mouth. Now contrast that with going out into the wide open ocean and jumping into the ocean. Now you've gone into the water. Well, that's how the Lord describes it. He says on the last day that he will say to his people, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. True happiness is the enjoyment of God himself. All of this is revealed to the believer now, ahead of time. When you set out on a a journey, your destination determines which way you will turn when leaving your home, going right or left. And it will determine which way you go at every single intersection you come to along the way. Do I go straight? Do I go right? Do I go left? Knowing the end of the journey affects our present actions. This is true in God's present plan of redemption. We read in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The believer's destination defines their daily decisions. Moses saw this. Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26, we read, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. The believer's present pilgrimage focuses on looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Like Moses' face that shone when he came out of the tabernacle, so when Stephen beheld the ascended Christ in Acts 7, the onlookers said that his face was like that of an angel. 
God, of course, is beauty. It's not just that he has beauty. He's the definition and the source of, of beauty. And the believer is transformed, beautified, if you will, by beholding him. I saw this earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we behold him through the revelation that he provides in the scriptures. This knowledge of heaven also transforms the believer's perspective on suffering. Romans 8 verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, the glory to come is so disproportionate that the sufferings in this world will fade into insignificance. All of the believer's afflictions have an have an expiration date on them. They're not permanent. One Puritan said, he that rides to be crowned will not be bothered by a rainy day. Or think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 to 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Christian life is a journey to see clearly. It starts with faith and ends with sight, but both set before the Christian the sight of God. The the believer has been predestined for this glory. We have seen that the the whole of biblical history, from Genesis to Revelation, serves to, to reveal to us the glory of God in Christ through his overarching plan of redeeming his people. In our very first introductory lecture, we considered the interview between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10. We saw how the scripture connects Solomon and his kingdom to Christ and his kingdom. You can now see in this last lecture more of the significance of that interchange. You'll remember that when she uh, took in all that she saw of Solomon, of his glory, his kingdom, his servants, his wealth, and the house of the Lord, the Bible says that it took her breath away. And she said, when I was in Sheba, I had heard many things about all of this. But the half was not told to me. This is true of the believer who, when when he or she arrives in glory to behold the glory of the Son of God, the one greater than Solomon, the Bible compels us to say that it will take your breath away. And though you have diligently read your Bibles and listened to countless sermons and study deeply these matters, you will be forced to conclude the half was not told to me. It will, be, it will far surpass our expectations and fully satisfy all of our longings. In conclusion, we have now come to the end of our course of lectures on biblical theology. But this is only the beginning of your journey. 
we have explored the history of redemption and, and highlighted only a small selection of the dominant themes. As stated at the outset of this course, the aim was to provide you with the basic building blocks for personal in-depth study. These lectures are a door, not the destination. You must take up these tools to, to press on in your study of God's word. There is far more to see and learn, and the prospects are exhilarating. May the Lord richly bless the time and energy you devote to your ongoing studies of, of Scripture. You can be assured of my own ongoing prayers for those who hear these lectures. While I will not have the privilege of meeting most of you in this world, my prayer is that we will be brought together under the throne to bask in the glory of the full revelation of God, no longer by faith, but by sight. As you have heard in this lecture, the best is yet to come. Congratulations on completing the Biblical Theology module at the John Knox Institute of Higher Education. We hope that it has inspired, challenged, and encouraged you, both in your developing ministry and in your own Christian walk. We are producing many other lecture series, including Systematic Theology, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. We hope you will be able to come back and join us for these modules also. God bless you.